On this week's Fintech Insider News, whether there's a correlation between being a big bank and having bad customer service, PayPal taking a stand against donations made to white supremacist groups, and we speak to EY's APAC fintech leader, James Lloyd, about the continued rise and development of Alipay and Chinese fintech. All this on more on this week's episode of Fintech Insider News. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Jason Bates, and today on the show, I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Breer and Simon Taylor. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And alongside them are our regular guests and friends of the show, uh, Liz Lumley, global fintech commentator. How are you doing, Liz? I'm very well. Ali Patterson, editor-in-chief of Fintech Finance. How's it going, Ali? All fine and dandy. And a new guy, a newbie, the guy we've got a haze, making his fintech insider <laughs> debut, Charlie Wood, theoretical physicist turned principal consultant at Capco. Hey, Charlie. Hello, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Your challenge is to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on with the news. So, first up, David, WhatsApp to introduce payments feature. Is this uh, another social network ads payment boring story or is there something to it oh man the like the pressure of making this interesting now right but i i guess like we've been probably you know talking about a lot about facebook and uh, alipay and all these kind of things that are kind of moving around in the world of uh, payments being integrated into various different messaging services and I, I guess this is sort of a long line of that trend um but maybe it's one of the ones that particularly in the uk actually it's very 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 heavily used so I don't know about your friend group, but WhatsApp is definitely kind of the de facto in terms of uh, communication capability rather than something like uh, Messenger or something uh, along those lines. So I kind of feel like the adoption of this one could be significant, but I do feel like this is probably just a continuation of the trend, really. I mean, we had quite a good discussion on fintechinsidernews.com around payments just having gone from banking. I mean, they belong at the point of need. They belong where you are, whatever social network you are, or you're, if you're in meat space, it's like that's where payments belong. Yeah, I, th- I definitely think the whole payments thing in context to the conversations or the communication capability that you're actually using makes complete sense. And actually, you know, that's why this works, right? If you've, I don't know how many customers WhatsApp actually has, but it seems to be everybody on the planet type thing. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't use WhatsApp? They're one of the few apps that are on the scale of WeChat in China. And they're, I think they're close to or over a billion, 1.2 billion I saw in the last Facebook results. Uh, and I think, look, it makes sense. You can imagine yourself there at a dinner or needing a friend, send a friend some money and you're already talking to them on WhatsApp and you just press a little button and before you know it, you've sent them the money. Like if it was that simple and that frictionless, it'd be great. And this has worked for WeChat in China. Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have been watching China for some time. It doesn't surprise me that we're the beginnings of this but this isn't story of they're going to roll this out to everybody it's we're starting to play with it a little bit and can we quite get the mechanics right because uh, it's worked there i'm not sure they'll they'll ever get this to market when will i see this in my I app no but i think we uh, not we chat uh, we what what's that what's app? <laughs> which app <laughs> oh, um but i mean it's like the history of doing the groups 
I think is in its favor. I mean, I was like six months ago, I was in a group for a hen weekend, you know, so the payments thing, you could see how it could. So I'm sorry, I have friends that get married. Um, but yeah, you can see the payment. I mean, I do agree with you. This is a trend. The payments in messaging apps is we're going to see more and more of that. I guess the like the sort of ubiquitous nature of WhatsApp to a certain degree, my yardstick is always my mum. And I know I was being reasonably <laughs> mocked on this one for, for on Twitter this week by somebody I can't recall who. So thanks for that one, whoever it was. Um, but well, for, my for bringing mom- your mum up in uh, uh, on in fintech insider. essentially yeah this is the fintech insider drinking game when you mention your mum i think it's it was gary fagan maybe who was mocking <laughs> me for that one but like my yardstick is my mum like tear but but like my mom uses whatsapp and it was kind of an adoption technique based on like do you know you can make free calls if i do it through this thing and i'm like yeah mom like been doing that forever um but like now's that like everybody's mum's using this then actually because i presume everybody's mum's doing it because my mum's doing it because she's like so old-fashioned with technology that if my mum's doing it anybody else's mum is doing it but I feel like for your suddenly- mum right now like <laughs> <laughs> we should yeah. we should get uh, mrs Breer on yeah by yeah. all means i, I, I do need sure to she point can't. out that this is um it's india based initially so they're trialing immediate bank-to-bank transfer with upi or the unified payments interface which is a system run by the reserve bank of india uh so it's i guess similar to uh local clearing in in any country it's it's the way that banks send each other money um and of course um whatsapp didn't comment on their plans for future whatsapp payments but said india is an important country for whatsapp and we're understanding how we can contribute more to the vision of digital india to me that is hey we can see that wechat worked in china we can see that tencent and alipay are trying to penetrate india we think we can win here too um so it still feels very much like an emerging markets play how do we become a platform i think that's the thing isn't it Uh, and that was going to be my question i don't know if uh, charlie or ali you've got a view on the fact that they've added payments, but there's also been a lot of talk of WhatsApp as a way of interacting with businesses. So you, all of a sudden you don't ha- it's another channel. You might phone your bank, but you might WhatsApp your bank or you might WhatsApp a retailer and actually having payments in there gets interesting. Do you, either of you see WhatsApp as a, as a bigger platform? I, I definitely do. Any in-band communication makes total sense to me. When I, when I go to the pub with you, <clears throat> now you're a tenor for the two beers you've given me. I don't then take you away to a different room, put on a suit and a tie, and then we exchange a tenor, then go back to the pub and have a meeting. We're already in a conversation. I'd we like it, it if you did, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll have it next time. I'll make sure I dress up. Uh, luckily, okay, this is radio. They're we work beers. We don't have to pay for them. They're fine. What about you? Uh, one thing that I did was thinking about this is if it's completely frictionless payments, i.e. via WhatsApp, People would want to do it because it's nice, nice and easy. But what if there's a big scandal and there's lots of uh, fraudulent payments made? Would it then be going? Would it then have to be a lot more secure and a lot more cumbersome? Do you think that people would be prepared to sacrifice security for the ease of use? Keep it below thirty pounds. Well, that's an easy answer. Yeah. I, I, like yes. <laughs> pretty, pretty much like i think most most people think fraud's somebody else's problem in most instances so i think actually the you know security is kind of the bank's problem and fraud is kind of the bank's problem if you let me do it i'll do it um and i think that's kind of almost the like it hasn't seemed to inhibit paypal in any way shape or form in terms of actually their their ability to make payments definitely hasn't inhibited um alipay or, or or wechat really in terms of kind of their ability to you know do much larger scale stuff than i think it's similar to anything it's it's actually like contactless payments was like 
you know, 3P on a plastic thing that you could top up to start with. And now you can make, you know, really reasonably significant purchases through Apple Pay, you know. So so from one bank's problems to lots of bank problems, RBS, a bottom in the banking service poll as First Direct remains top in this money-saving expert report. Ali, what have you you had a look at this? I did. I had a look at it, and it's it's a great uh, table that the guys at Money Saving Expert have done because you have the percentage that people have ranked these banks as poor as well as great and okay. And I did a bit of digging around, and I'll have to send you guys the link, but I found the uh, British Banking Association had done a um, market share percentage, and pretty much, give or take 4%, the poor ranking also equals the market share of the bank so first direct top of the table they've got about three percent market share in this country lloyd's rbs barclays natwest hsbc all, all the kind of the the big ones very very low in the tables much much bigger market share so the question i kind of got for you guys is do they have a poor customer service because they are very large or are they very large because we're sadists and (laughs) (laughs) forget association we're going for pure causation here so does being big make you bad as a david positioned against goliath usually then i'd say yes but um i I think the the thing to point out on this one is so it's six thousand one hundred one uh six thousand one hundred and eleven hard to say should recognize 11 shouldn't i really so it's not a massive sample size that we're actually sort of seeing in this but it's it is definitely interesting the differences that you start to see in some of these things even though you know deep down that they're pretty much the same thing so the like the biggest one being first direct to hsbc knowing that it's hsbc painted slightly differently with a cheeky chappy attitude on a telephony center type thing then the difference between 46 percent and 90 percent is amazing all this really highlights to me is that the general public voting for stuff is pretty terrible. But given everything that we've seen in Brexit and Trump and everything else that's happened over the last <laughs> year, then am I surprised by this? Then not really. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I'm actually okay with the stats. Uh, but I suspect if you ranked the modernity of their technology in each org- organisation, the order would be the same. Um, First Direct are a slightly more modern version of uh, HSBC. Yeah, they're powered on the same tech, sure. But like, there are elements of them that are a bit more customer-centric in their technology approach. And I wonder, personally, self-service. That's what I want. I want, I want immediate satisfaction, self-service. And that is the order in which those banks do it. RBS is at the bottom. Monzo would be at the top, so I'd put them really high. So essentially, we know TSB, Halifax and Lloyd's are essentially the same technology stack and we've got ranging from 50 percent to 64 percent so so i I guess that gives you sort of it adds weight to that really is like with intolerance of 14 percent then actually they're kind of getting around it so what they've voted for is how good their technology is rather than how good their service is and it shows that those two things are intrinsically linked so i completely agree with you charlie so from the big retail banks let's move to to a newer bank on in business. We saw this week that Oak North's loan book continues to grow exponentially and they have more than doubled their loan book this year, lending out 430 million since January. Uh, Simon? 
Yeah, Oak North are a different one. So you tend to think of a bank as where retail customers go to uh, have bank accounts, but this is an entrepreneur-focused bank. So their, their primary purpose for being is to lend money to small businesses that are looking to for high growth. And they see their value as their ability to do underwriting, in other words, manage the risk of those loans being repaid. Um, but doubling the amount you're lending year on year as a VC-backed startup is, is really quite significant. Uh, we've had uh, both in the US and the UK for a number of years, peer-to-peer lenders come along and, and start lending really, really well and then suddenly find themselves in difficulty because they couldn't fund their loan book. This is a bit of a different approach. There's a definite need in the market for small business lending and to do it as a bank that can take deposits, you're actually really well strategically placed. So the interesting question for Oak North is, one, can their amazing underwriting be sustained? Can they manage the issues of scale? Can they really continue to grow and focus on the entrepreneur markets? And two, do they start to look outside of Europe and do they start to move internationally? And will we see this trend um, start to start to get exported? Because small business is absolutely really on fire right now. It's something that we get inquiries about all the time at 11FS is like, how do I do something new in the small business sector? No matter where you are in the world, small business lending and that funding gap is, is seems to have been an issue. But this, this isn't quite that sort of SME, I've just started a new business, you know, can you give me a bit of money? Um, oh, they, higher up. Yeah, exactly. They, so they the seem to have, have been uh, aiming at those businesses that are going well, that need money to scale, yeah. that, that all of a sudden, you know, um, Brasserie Blanc or one of the big chains wants to open 100 new restaurants and are doing very well, like let's lend them money. Um, although the thing that caught my eye was that half of their loan book is to house builders, which obviously gives them s- some systemic risk in terms of, you know, how that market plays out. And, and again, I think the conversations interesting here for they've made the model work really well on that very fast decision with a group of people who almost like a VC investment sort of decision seem to bring all the data together so that they can then assess whether the business is doing well or not and I seem to remember a headline saying that they hadn't had a loan default you know they they seem to be really nailing that the question is is how does that scale you know or does that scale okay you can double it now but how do you really grow it if it if it is a really people intensive you know review process well they're, they're actively using data to ensure that people are not defaulting which is the you know this is kind of more new age lending isn't it i, I think uh, the bit that i find so the house building house renovating whatever that that feels like a a bizarre like 50% of the lending going to that feels like quite an interesting step, to be honest with you. Because like, you don't hear about that so much, do you? That feels like a very sort of 2005 kind of everybody suddenly is buying and, re- you know, buying and renovating houses and stuff. But the idea that that's kind of going on and really sort of, you know, 50% of what they're actually lending out now. I, I guess the, the point that I find really, really interesting about this one is that they're doing all of this with 140 people. Mm. Like, point to a bank that has only 140 people doing lending, lending this amount of money and making this amount of money. It's amazing. There's something quite else quite interesting compared to like the iWalkers and invoice cycles out there, which is very much you can log in and, and do it all online and within 20 minutes the funds can hit your account. This as well, you actually have to speak to a person and have that, that face-to-face or over-the-phone interaction. So which makes that 140 people even more impressive. Indeed. I'd love to see the Treasury function. Back, back to your point, Simon. They're like, I, how, I've never heard of anyone having a deposit in Oak North. 
Uh, and yet they're able to fund this. Yes, they've got a load of backing from VCs and stuff. And it's clearly, it is a self-perpetuating cycle. Once you've got enough loans in and you're making enough interest, you can start to fund your loans a bit more. But it still seems a bit strange that the treasury function must be fascinating. But being a techie, obviously, the thing I care about is the fact that they are 100% AWS run. Their entire core infrastructure, first bank to be AWS. Exactly. 100% cloud. Yeah. And there was just a great story. I remember uh, hearing the founder on a podcast talk about the fact that they went to the FCA. They uh, argued for, uh, for, to, for using cloud. And the FCA, this this was almost like pre-sandbox. It was the the prototype sandbox. Let's work with a provider who has a good case on making this work, which then creates some cloud guidelines and contra- uh, contractual you know obligations for everyone else. That was just such a you know such a powerful move they made. It, it, it's surprising, given that move, given that the FCA was so sort of involved in that process, that so few banks have actually made the bold move to go fully cloud right so moving on liz paypal escalates the tech industry's war on white supremacy i'm not sure there's a more clickbait (laughs) headline in the entire history of uh, fintech insiders (laughs) well the reason why i found this this story interesting um because i think it it brings up a lot of stories that have happened over the past few years. I mean, of course, we all know what happened in the United States and Virginia over the weekend um, with a, a neo-Nazi groups uh, marching. But so PayPal have announced that they will ban users from accepting uh, donations via PayPal for hate groups, which I guess reportedly a lot of the groups in Virginia used PayPal. How are they classifying that? Like, well, words? you see, well, see, th- this is where the debate is starting. So a, a well-established organized group like the Ku Klux Klan is a well-established hate group. Pretty straightforward. That's pretty yeah. black and white. Um, you know, whether oh. or not... <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, yeah, but then, you know, if you look at other sort of people who just buy a tiki torch and act like a douchebag, um, you know, what, wh- wh- where are they on that spectrum? And it just kind of reminded me a little bit of what YouTube and Facebook are going through with what responsibility does the platform have with the users that use it? So mm. YouTube have ISIS terrorists putting videos up on its platform. What responsibility does YouTube have to stop that from happening? Mm. What responsibility does PayPal have to stop the Ku Klux Klan accepting donations via its service? Um, you know, in a number of years ago, Swift got into a huge uh, PR debacle over U.S. Homeland Security requesting um, different routes about how terrorists were being funded, um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So there, there is a, a, a sort of civil liberties type argument around this. But, um, you know, I mean, I can see PayPal and a lot of these payment, you know, we, when you're taking payments over, we chatting over WhatsApp and over Facebook Messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, you put yourself in a position you, of yeah. responsibility. You, you do. You f- suddenly find yourself uh, having a social responsibility and difficult questions to answer. Like building the tech is one thing. The uh, the humanities type questions that come along with what should we do and how should we manage the tech once millions of people use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's uh, kind of like Silk, you're going back to Bitcoin with Silk Road and using, you know, uh, I was going to say exactly the same thing because mm. we've had this, we've had versions of this story on a number of episodes where actually it talks about tech platform that scales not infinitely but massively because it is all tech based. And whether that's Facebook and the news that goes on there or PayPal and who you're sending that money to, um, the fact that you have to then bring editors or people in to actually review and say, is this right or not, then massively impacts the scalability and the, the cost base of those organizations. And there's a really interesting question for tech and society, I guess, about that balance yeah. because we can have free and phenomenally cheaply because machines do it all 
or, or but at some point we say well actually we we don't want facebook to publish everything we want someone just to make sure this is all right that, that ago, breaks yeah. that scalability a few years ago i think the youtubes and facebooks very much took a it's you know that's not it's we're just the platform it's yeah. not our responsibility and now they're seeing that they you can't you can't do that and, and it's not just them i mean in this story cloudflare uh, one of the world's largest dns providers so the very people who help you get around the internet and, and, and address uh, your website and, and help people access it uh, they're they're sort of saying they're taking a stand against this Squarespace who help provide uh, websites for people and Twitter themselves are all trying to demonstrate that they have a sense of social responsibility here that they feel that they should close this down and I think it, there's there's two sides to it right there's the public perception of uh, you know I, I have a lot of users who think this is abhorrent I have to close it down versus the free speech argument and a lot of these platforms were built on the principles of free speech so they are in a tough spot but but who is who is hate like you know they're, they're looking at actually defining hate violence and intolerance so violence i kind of get but like hate and intolerance like would a donation to trump be like considered <laughs> intolerance to somebody this is but, why but, shades yeah. of gray but for the yeah. other person a donation to hillary clinton would be deemed kind of intolerance Absolutely. in terms of so i kind of feel like actually this or is, someone could say oh black lives matter oh uh, that's i think that's a hate exactly group. like you're racist because you say white lives matter you know like it's just like it's a kind of a weird yeah you know either you've got to be completely neutral or basically PayPal is defining ethics, which well, I think becomes a really... Well, I don't know. I think that the, the Southern Poverty Law Center has a pretty dis- definitive list of what are considered hate groups. I'd love that list. <laughs> <laughs> Can I put forward a counter-argument to this, though? I, and I, I'm well aware that I would rather that PayPal just allowed Ku Klux Klan, um, Black Lives Matter, what, 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 it doesn't matter what, uh, to be able to use it to process donations because... The, they're going to do it anyway, whether it's through cash. They're going to get the funds either way through the platform. If it's done through something like PayPal, you then have that information and you can then action that. So if you have somebody, oh, hang on a second, there's this party on the other side of the world that's funding a particular group. You can go, OK, I now know that because it's done through PayPal as opposed to beforehand. I know it does open a thing around, OK, you know, what well, can you do with the information? You lose visibility. Well, yeah. well but and also you know the data protection from our perspective actually if suddenly you started exposing people for kind of supporting the kkk via paypal donations then actually paypal are going to get in trouble for terms of use of data so actually like there's a weird suing scenario that we're going to get into in this so charlie what do you think because on on one side you could argue well hey this is what bitcoin libertarians are all about you know the fact that you're suddenly uh, censoring uh, transactions across the world surely points to having decentralized infrastructure that mean people can't get into this like what do you think i'm a massive socialist i know i'm glad you noticed that thanks Um, yeah this one i find really hard if you have a scale of anything whether it be a level of hate or whatever you want to choose literally anything you like and you try and draw a boundary in it you are always going to fail to defend that boundary you can never decide what sits below and what sits above whether it's right wrong truth um lies i guess that's actually probably an easy one to define but anywhere where you try and draw a boundary you are never going to be able to really define what is acceptable and unacceptable i much prefer trying to attack a problem like that by finding a new lens on it such that there is no boundary there you don't have to defend a boundary anymore you just look at the entire set or space of what you're doing and say we either allow or disallow the entire thing rather than trying to draw so i'd much prefer the idea of everyone's free to do whatever they want you're still not 
not allowed to do illegal activities. I don't know how you police that. And this is where I think freedom of speech really so comes So there's a cause and effect issue here, yeah. to Jason's point. If you censor it, people will create technologies that are harder to censor, and the cycle repeats. So the challenge that the technologists find themselves with now is the same challenge journalists have had for generations, which is how do you find balance? And balance is not an easy thing to find because you have to find a middle ground, and that's a judgment call. And that's something that's going to take a long time for AI to understand, lest we see what happened with Facebook in the last elections. Wow, that was like a nice balance kind of like bringing it back. I like that. Simon just threw a mic on the floor. Nice, <laughs> nice. So with that, I think, Simon, actually, you spoke to James Lloyd, the APAC fintech leader for EY, uh, about Alipay and Chinese fintech. Yeah, we spoke to him about a number of stories. Here's the uh, interview. Great. So on Fintech Insider, we have the wonderful James Lloyd, the APAC fintech leader from Ernst & Young. James, how are you, sir? I'm excellent. I'm excellent, Simon. Long time no speak. How are things yeah, in London? Yeah, you really are excellent at so many things, um, especially joining us on this podcast. Um, first story up is one from Bloomberg, and this was submitted by our very own Sam Mole onto fintechinsidernews.com. And this is kind of a brief story, basically saying that in 2017, Apple stock is up around 38%, but it's left trailing by Alibaba and Tencent of the technology giants from China. What, what do you think is behind this one, James? Oh, gosh. I mean, look, I think if we if, 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 to comment on an, on an article, from two or three days ago was already a bit of a fool's errand in this market because the pace of change here, by which I mean, or by which I include valuation, is, is pretty tremendous. So, in fact, I'm sitting here uh, in Hong Kong, and as of the last 12, 24 hours, Alibaba have announced uh, their most recent quarterly results, which have seen you know some massive increase on, on, on the prior uh, or, or on the corresponding previous year. And I think as a consequence, you know, the stock has even gone further, further and further. In fact, they're now talking about approaching Amazon. From a from a valuation perspective, so you know, without getting into the specifics around around pricing and so on, because you know, as I say, it changes so much. I just I think that the, the underlying business model of Alibaba, the uh, you know sheer market dominance they have in what is now the biggest e-commerce market in the world, um, and the growth trajectory of that market, you know, in which they they play such a central role, just has everyone salivating. Frankly, um, I think it's trading perhaps at about you know thirty x. Its stock is up about ninety percent since since um, the start of two thousand seventeen. Based on what I've been reading around analyst reports and on the most recent report, uh, earnings call, um, you know I think that's going to continue to go up. So uh, certainly don't listen to me for financial investment advice. I should probably qualify that up front. Um, but you know, it, it, they're just seen as having so much more runway in, in, in some of the market. Sorry, in, in China, in, in some of the verticals that they they currently dominate. And I think that maybe is the point here of this article, isn't it? Is that there's runway and there's headroom to grow versus uh, the smartphone market in the US has reached a certain level of penetration. And no matter how much you up your prices and release new handsets, you're selling to the same amount of people who already had a phone. Whereas actually the e-commerce market uh, of a billion people that has penetrated, what, 40, 50% has a long way to grow before it's really reached its potential and is probably accelerating rather than declining. Uh, there's a linked story here or, or a similar one coming out of TechCrunch, again submitted by our own Sam Moll on Fintech Insider News, where Alipay have partnered with Yelp. Uh, so Yelp being the kind of famous review site that helps you review restaurants and other businesses to continue its pursuit of Chinese tourist money. What does it mean by pursuing Chinese tourist money? Do you know what's behind that, James? Uh, yeah, sure. I, actually, I was just in the US a couple of weeks ago and I'd forgotten how, uh, firstly, the, the you know Yelp is 
very widespread and, and I, you know, the, the people we were hanging out with, friends of mine we were staying with, uh, were, you know, really using Yelp much more than I had remembered. So it's clearly, you know, pretty significant, you know, located restaurant or retail or whatever it might be. Uh, I, I mean, I think in relation to the Alipay piece, this is, this is very much in line with what we've seen previously. Uh, a huge part of the overseas or internationalization plan has been the vast majority of Chinese traveling abroad, be they business people, be they students, or, or, or of course, the majority being tourists, they certainly already have an Alipay wallet. In fact, they almost certainly have WeChat as well. Um, so how can we enable them to continue using those payment instruments uh, as they travel abroad? Because, of course, Chinese tourists spend a considerable amount when they travel, uh, so too are students and, and business people. So yeah, for me, this story is just kind of another in the long list of uh, relationships, partnerships being formed by these uh, big companies as they seek to just can capture more and more of that spend it's not dissimilar to what we saw in the sort of late 80s early 90s when mastercard and visa uh, coming out of the us and europe would follow their tourists to major tourist destinations uh, and you well, would... well, well, for sure and jcb out of japan of course and, and perhaps the most uh, interesting comparator from my perspective is china union pay I mean, Union Pay have been pushing this agenda, of course, for 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 many years now, um, and have increased uh, card acceptance in in a, in a range of different markets. I mean, if you look at the official numbers in terms of countries and so on, but ultimately, you know, creating acceptance is one thing, uh, driving acceptance is another. So actually, having people use it uh, easily, ensuring that merchants in all of these markets know to promote or to push. Uh, alternative acceptance models and so on. This is this is the real challenge. So, you know, often whether it's this story or any other, when it comes to merchant payment acceptance, you know, I like to talk about, uh, you know, how much of this is then going to be driven at a merchant level because there's an education piece, there's a, a promotion piece, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're probably still early in that space, but, you know, over the next couple of years, will we see Alipay, WeChat Pay, uh, taking off overseas, at least from a Chinese domestic perspective, you know, I think we might. That's a really interesting point. Um, and you've linked me really beautifully to the next story up, which is one in Technology Review that says, uh, can WeChat, the famous chat application similar to WhatsApp for, for most of the West, uh, Western world, uh, can it thrive in the United States? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Personally, I think we need to, th- th- there's a lot of hype at the moment. There's a lot of talk about, um, you know, the China uh, internet growth story and that fintech story, and, and rightly so. I mean, I think there's been tremendous innovation and adoption in China. In fact, you know, as you'll have seen from, from our EY report, fintech adoption in China far outstrips anywhere else. You know, as to how internationalizable or replicable overseas some of those models are, I mean, I hate to, I hate to state the obvious, but the differences in markets can be so immense as to, you know, as to preclude some of it. So, so what do I mean by that when it comes to WeChat? Well, again, you know, as I've, as I've said before, I think even, even on, on your show, the starting point in China was, uh, you know, consumers, SMEs, uh, you know, in many ways ignored by the by the traditional state-owned banks, you know, very cash dependent, uh, no U.S. Uh, technology firms with any real penetration there. So the opportunity, the white space into which Tencent, Ali and others moved was was tremendous. It, you look to uh, the U.S. Or, or, or Europe and, of course, Yes, you know, there's still a considerable underserved market, but for the most part, people have credit cards or access to credit cards. For the most part, people have access to basic investment products, wealth management products. Certainly, people have access to multitude of, of messaging services. So, you know, that white space just doesn't exist in the same way. 
And I think when, when I hear people talk about WeChat, they say, well, the functionality that, you know, there's this uh, incredible bundling of functionality within WeChat. And that's true. Um, but I'm not sure the same need exists in a market like the U.S., where, uh, of course, Facebook penetration, WhatsApp, um, and a couple of others is so high. So, you know, on paper, I think it can, you know, you could say that the, the better product or, or the or the product with more functionality wins. But in practice, you know, this is a network game. Um, you know, messaging uh, is just entirely dependent on, you know, who else is using and what's the value to me as a consumer. And, and I think they will struggle in, in almost in any other market that has a highly developed messaging culture already. I'm not sure there's room for any other players, let alone any of the Chinese ones. Indeed. I think the interesting thing is perhaps more the business model that we've seen where the chat application has become central to people's lives and the whole payments ecosystem has evolved around it. Uh, we covered earlier on the Fintech Insider News uh, episode that uh, WhatsApp and India are looking to roll out the ability to make payments within WhatsApp. And uh, there's an emerging market uh, that has massive growth potential for chat applications and payments. And similarly, uh, we could see the same thing start to happen where Western um, chat applications start to try and replicate what we've seen but will we actually see direct competition it sounds like you're saying probably not there's direct competition and there's indirect so you know one of the bigger messaging services in india as you mentioned is it, actually hike um which itself is beginning to introduce payment functionality in fact tencent is a big investor in hike um similarly paytm of which alibaba and softbank are the biggest investors uh, is itself talking now about introducing in fact, messaging services overlaid on their payment facility. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, WhatsApp, uh, and I believe India is, in fact, WhatsApp's biggest market in terms of uh, consume, in, in terms of users, is, of course, itself thinking about leveraging UPI for, for payment functionality. So definitely, that's a really interesting market to watch. But, you know, as in e-commerce, in fact, in India, it seems to be a battleground between some of the big China players and some of the big US players. So it may be when I say that I don't think Tencent or, or WeChat is necessarily replicable in some of these markets, that doesn't mean Tencent won't have a big role to play. When I say, you know, Alipay may not be the dominant payment player in, in market, why? It may be because they're investing or, or JVing or, or whatever with someone else. So, you know, I think the influence of these big China players is going to be felt and is increasingly felt far beyond uh, the Chinese borders. Um, but it may not be in the kind of direct competition manner which people describe. Absolutely. That influence is really significant. James, thank you so much for being with us on Fintech Insider News. Where can people find out more about you, sir? I'm uh, pretty active slash whorish on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but it's usually just checking in at various airports. But yeah, look, always happy to speak to anyone interested in, in what's happening in Asia. I mean, I'll be, I'll be traveling a bit more widely over the next couple of months, so it'd be great to catch up with some of your listeners. Look forward to it, James. Thank you for being with us on Fintech Insider. Cheers, mate. Speak to you soon. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com.
This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by SmartDX, a smart communication solution. The days of managing capital markets documentation using Word docs and emails are over when you use SmartDX in its innovative, collaborative negotiation environment, built by the industry for the industry. SmartDX simplifies drafting, negotiation, and execution of all capital markets documentation for all asset classes and product types while giving you transparency, control, and digital data that can be extracted at any point in the process. Learn more at www.smartcommunications.com backslash SmartDX. So on with the next story. Simon, fintech CEO, that's always a dangerous start to a headline, says tech giants like IBM may go on M&A shopping spree for startups in 2018. Yeah, so this is a guy who's the CEO of a startup called Auka, A-U-K-A. I have no idea how to say that, so apologies if you work for that startup. Auka, there you go. Thank you, Ali. Um, Says that tech giants like IBM and Capgemini could go on a mergers and acquisition shopping spree. So the type of company that they would buy, he is the CEO of. I just think it's a little fishy for somebody who's the CEO of a company and might want to sell it uh, to say to CNBC that this is what they're going to do. I mean, his argument is that they have some tech nuances, they have some capabilities, the big companies have the customers, he has some interesting tech and companies like his do. I can see it, right? So there are big incumbent tech providers have been doing M&A for years. I mean, IBM have not been short of M&A over the last 15 years it's been one of the ways they've they've tried to grow their top line um i, I can see it happening i don't know about cap gemini on this one that one's a little strange to me. Th- those are the two companies he's been talking to <laughs> yeah like it, it's an odd one i can see it but i don't know that they're the buyers i don't know that the tech vendors are the buyers i think there are other bigger sort of uh, providers and tech uh, finance companies that might be interested in acquiring as part of a roll-up some of the bigger fintech companies some private equity those sorts of houses charlie do you have a view on this it was interesting like the first slightly further down the article he the driver is open banking psd2 da, 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 da. and i kind of thought well the these big tech giants like ibm they're already on they're kind of on the the left side of the banking arena they already own loads of the aspects of core banking when it comes to technology i, I don't do they really care that much about who's on the right hand side of that interface and in the open banking psd2 world i'm, I'm not sure i'm not sure but there's, there's a worrying trend in there. I mean, this is on CNBC, but we've seen a few articles recently where random person who has nothing to do with those two companies or the company in question makes a comment about what they're going to do. And then the, uh, the journalist goes into, ah, oh, well, how might that work? And talks to someone who has no idea, has absolutely no connection, and then finishes the story with, neither IBM or Capgemini were immediately available for comment. Of course not. They're just not going to say anything. I mean, I could just call up a journalist and say, like, Apple is going to open a bank. And I could probably get <laughs> and a... Apple has not got <laughs> you, you definitely have to say could open a bank but like Dan- daniel's actually a really smart guy like the stuff that they've done is is very good like they've scaled it out like really really well i think this is just a matter of a journalist latching onto something yeah somebody said quite possibly and we make, might be being you know, yeah, yeah but i think there's a bigger story besides this particular you know norwegian startup and ibm and capgemini is that i think we are entering a period of consolidation where you're going to see a lot of big banks and big corporations buying these startups. And you know what? Not always for reasons because they like them. This is what happened in the 90s. You, Reuters bought companies to kill them. But as I say, they who's, made that, 
work. So BBVA have bought Simple, they bought Holvi. Simple, um, Simple is a- not doing too well. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's exactly my point. A big part of Atom. Um, you know, which banks but, are... But did, did, uh, did- uh, did and did, do. You got Moss on us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the robots are picking me up right now. Um, so, but does BBVA actually buy stuff to like for the company to be good? Like, I don't think they're doing it for like corporate VC perspective. Like, we've got Shamir now, who was one of the founders of Simple, running BBVA's API strategy. Like, that is a, yeah for anybody's investment. The what was it, eighty six million euros that they actually invested in? Like, that's a pretty big salary to pay some dude. But I'm sure they actually got a. a decent return in terms of actually the understanding of what they did and how they did it and now they've got somebody awesome running the the api strategy yeah it's not all downside but there is this sort of big company does m&a in the financial services sector and then the brand that they bought doesn't seem to live very long um visa have been the 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 masters of this for quite some time um mastercard have actually been on the other side of it they've done okay with the stuff they've acquired um it's just i think it's uh, an epidemic though not of those companies wanting to do bad i think they have the best of intentions when they go into M&A. I think they want to help the companies grow. I don't think anybody's going in just with the intention of killing it. There's usually a positive business case. I'm, I'm not cynical enough to think it's just, oh, I'm going to kill this thing by buying it. It's like, no, I'm going to have a growth opportunity by buying this thing. I'm going to help it succeed. And then for whatever reason, being a large company, there's an inability to execute or the strategies don't align or something just never happens. But to, to Liz's point, this, this era of consolidation, FinTech's been around for seven eight years now as a thing um it's it's kind of gone from its like growth to steadily bumping along at about the same sort of rate uh there is probably time for consolidation to to come in and, and be, go through a wave so, but uh, well i guess charlie with capco you work across the world see you know a variety of things going on do you think that there's this consolidation going on too it, it's it's a really interesting one, isn't it? I mean, our uh, one one of our parent companies now, I guess I should call it, um, definitely goes through a phase of consolidating other companies and um, spending spending spree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. They're they're too busy to comment because they're already at the shopping cart. Um, <laughs> but sometimes, but they do well, right? I mean, some of the things. Sometimes they- you lose a brand. Sometimes you don't. Um, it's a good question. What we're seeing on the on the left, like in the in the basements of the banks, as it were, are new people and new uh, coming along to offer new technologies to solve things, new fintech solving the problems in different ways. So if anything, actually from the kind of consumer implementation side, it looks like the market's getting a bit broader. That's not to say it won't consolidate. It's the circle of life. So thanks to Enoko and Nwani, who uh, put that on FinTech Insider News for us. Uh, Moving on to another story, um, Andrew Earl uh, suggested this, that digital pocket money startup Spriggy. Now, I've heard of some digital pocket money startups, and this is a new one on me, but they've just got two and a half million Australian dollars. Oh, and it's Australian. What a great name. Funding. (laughs) Spriggy. So who wants to talk about Spriggy? I I think it highlights the point that it's getting harder and harder to name a startup. Um, (laughs) No, but I'm going to criticise my former employers here with their news judgment. Really, 2.5 million Australian dollars, that's a news story? I think what's more interesting about this is that it's founded by two former derivatives traders. That's exactly what that I picked That should be up. the headline. Yeah. <laughs> people are leaving investment banking to go form some kind of fintech startup because they think they can do well. And we've had a few of these where, uh, was it 
um, a Norwegian bank or a Danish bank who launched uh, launched like a pocket money startup and this idea that you have kids looking after money and that becomes a way to acquire them as a customer of a full bank years later. Like I buy the strategy to the point on the previous story, do we see these guys getting acquired and is that is that their route? It's an interesting question, but there's been a few of these around for a few years, and none of them ever seem to... I don't know, derivatives traders looking for deposits, and then they've got a bank set up, and then they've got these young... You know, I mean, I'm sorry, I see sinister stuff. Well, 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 yeah, like, but at least you know that. You know where they've come from. You yeah. know it's not a completely altruistic sort of uh, investment thing that we want to educate kids. Oh, no, everyone you know, in like... fintech wants to talk. Yeah. I think there's okay. two things interest me. One is that there's these beachheads that are now almost becoming staple. You know, there's the travel money beachhead. Are you going to do a Revolut? There's the Ospigo Henry approach. Are you going to do that? There's the Venmo. There's one that ABN AMRO have done. There's one that D, uh, DNB have done in Norway. DNB, thank you. Where where actually they do uh, peer-to-peer payments. And then there's this, this, you know, pocket money version. And for new territories and new areas, it's like they look to previous fintech players and say, which one are we going to do? And Australia really interests me. I'm a, you know, full disclosure, I've become a non-executive director of a new startup bank there called Zinja. Uh, but I see like them, you know, very much looking at what's going on in Europe and going, what, which play do we select in order to make it work here? Mm, there's a, there's a fintech go to market playbook, isn't it? Like what's, what's your beachhead and then where do you go next? And I think there's a whole generation of people who have been for a long time financially excluded, which is your teenage generation and teaching them something, especially in the age of e-gaming, right? So this is now a massive phenomenon. Esports is a massive industry. Wow. When I, say I didn't, e- I didn't think you'd go there. That's, that's, we've gone tangential. I love it. No, no, no I'll bring He's it back been around. Talking yeah. about it in, in the office for at least three weeks. Like, <laughs> like really, like passionately as well. Esports is phenomenally large, and teenagers are wanting to tip and spend money on esports. Like, go look up esports. It is a massive industry. It's huge, and we're completely ignoring the fact that teenagers want to spend money and don't have credit cards, and that's the only way to tip people in the esports arena. There are people making millions of dollars a year living as esports stars. So this is a whole world and a whole industry that the banking system has largely locked itself out of. The only people doing anything okay in it are Stripe.com through their APIs, and that's digitally excluding a lot of people in emerging markets and below a certain age. If you twist this the right way, it could be a giant opportunity to uh, engage a generation of people with a topic and a subject that they love. So I just looking up esports on Wikipedia. This is huge. This makes no, it's like huge. yeah, but McGregor the thing is, but like it gets, it's like the same people that make money off of playing poker. There are some people that make a lot of money playing fantasy football, but, it, but, but not everyone. But does. it's the growth in the esports yeah. industry. It's massive. Well, I've got a I've got a very good friend from university who makes his living now making YouTube videos playing games that then he's tipped on. And and lives like supports his entire family. So go judge. go look at uh, Gopher on YouTube. Judge, it makes you sort of look back at every judgment you've ever made in your adult life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I went. I was out in Oslo. I was having a drink with this guy I went to uni with. You know, one of my best friends, uh, Gopher on YouTube, and. He like, he lives playing games and making videos playing games. Like the even the satellite industries around it are crazy. It sounds like we're being facetious, but this is big business. And if you're a financial services organization, fintech or otherwise, no matter where you are in the world, what's your strategy for serving these customers? I, I think it's bullshit. My dad told me <laughs> I would never make any money from playing computer games, son. Yeah. Type thing. Like you know, like I really need to evaluate every decision. Like you know, are you sailors? 
So is that the new uh, the new set of podcasts and videos? Is it going to be David Breer, Fintech Insider meets Fallout, you know? <laughs> FIFA. FIFA Fintech Insider League. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just, just live streaming as playing Xbox in the office. Can we have a video of installing a core banking system? We could invite, like we could invite <laughs> banking CEOs to come play FIFA. We'll have a little league. We'll chat to them as they're playing because it'll put them off their game. You know, they're going to have to concentrate. You can ask some great questions. I'll be honest. I would watch that. <laughs> like genuinely. Didn't you once say that destiny is the new golf? Yeah, computer gaming is definitely the new golf. So there was, there was at least three clients that I had when I used to work for a management consultant that the only conversation that I actually ever had with them was through uh, Xbox. So and they were, one of them definitely was C-suite. Uh, all three of them, were. Uh. <laughs> but it, but it was because actually that's that's the way in which you engage with people these days, especially if they're on the other other end of the planet type thing. It like the, on the basis that that guy was in the US and I was having to explain why I was staying up to three o'clock in the morning playing Destiny. It was the best reason I could come up with to my wife. <laughs> okay, moving on. Westpac launches Tech University to reskill workforce. Obviously, reskilling and actually taking a especially a large incumbent workforce along with you on this digital transformation journey is is a top of lots of people's agendas how does this fit in a tech university i like it i, I generally think the idea lots of people i speak to hate the idea of ai because they're worried it's going to kill us all and turn into massive robots i, I generally think that actually <laughs> what it's going to do yeah precisely right then elon musk i'm sorry he has a rudimentary understanding of ai don't forget. well it, this is it right i mean it's, it's generally hard to really get a grip of it um, and this idea that it'll become intelligent and thus kill everything we've never had evidence for that in the past we've become more intelligent than other species on this planet and we go around pretty poorly killing each other sure but we don't go out there to, to simultaneously wipe out entire species but whatever no, I, we I do honest- do that we do <laughs> but not deliberately we do, we do. No, we do. history <laughs> I don't deliberately do it <laughs> Um, uh, but, but but anyway, the, the belief of AI to me is that it's going to push us up the value chain. It's going to st- stop us doing the nonsense that we're having to do that it's is meaningful and boring. Teams, yeah. Exactly, which means th- so this idea of everybody's going to be out of work when the first AI surgeon comes along, I think, is rubbish. I think actually we'll reskill and become even better, and the humans will be solving the actual human problems that are difficult to solve, and AI will be doing the mechanics. So Charlie, I buy sense. that. I buy that completely. I think what you're saying is is absolutely right, and and we've talked for some time on the show about what is the competitive advantage of a human it's not doing boring tasks repetitive tasks it's being human it's being empathetic it's being creative and so on but this this is really is a, ai is mentioned in this story but really it's a bank is going to train its people like the bank is putting its faith in TechU, an internal it university and part of its uh, learning bank online training program basically a bunch of employees in a bank are going to do computer-based training that, that's what i'm seeing and that's going to transform oh, their work skeptical <laughs> no but i thought it was kind of cute it's like we used to send them for PowerPoint training. <laughs> like, oh. So now you're going to sit at your laptop and do training. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. This oh. could be so much better. Like, maybe I'm missing it, right? Maybe it's just not clear in the article. Maybe they're doing something really interesting. And I do get the fact that they, they want to retrain people and they don't want to just, like, leave people to rot. And they want to get people... And anybody of a certain age can, can gain any skills. Love that attitude. But... Show me something, guys. Maybe it's just not coming out in the article. Well, there's a great... I mean, this is on Finextra, uh, so I blame Liz. But there's a, there's a, there's a great uh, no article that then. says the biggest... And by the way, there are three Gs in biggest. But the biggest challenge facing the bank, he says, lies in repealing 19th century governance structures, ditching traditional command and control structures, and convincing 65% of the workforce over the age of 35 to embrace a new way of working. I mean, that's, that's getting pretty punchy. It is. <laughs> 
34, <laughs> you're done. You've got no chance if you're 34. Yeah. Right. But like, what are the new governance structures? How do you organize themselves? Are we talking here about adopting a Spotify governance model? Are we talking about other things? Like this This culture change is something we talk about a lot. I, I think we, we talk about that fabled Chris Rock speech over and over and over and over again, right? Like people are just getting like all sorts of praise about shit they just should be doing. Like this is a bank trains their staff like yeah like they should be doing that right i kind of like it most people like so ai i know it sounds like a bit of like all over the place but we we deem things now to be completely mundane that once upon a time would have been in the realms of artificial intelligence and so if you strip that out and you just say technology in general is pushing people up the value chain and water point getting rid of the rubbish we don't have to do then this is stopping people becoming entirely redundant this is literally the thing that stops people going i don't want electronic surgeons because that means i don't have a job i don't know i'm i think that that's propaganda by people putting these things in that don't want to make the workforce go fuck we're out of a we're out of work uh because when you look at it when you've got whatsapp and uh continually you know continuous integration deployment and devops running hundreds of servers for you know hundreds of millions of customers with an extremely small team I would guess that every large financial organization wants a very small team satisfying millions of customers, which does like take lots of people. Yeah, but, out yeah, of but the, the thing is, now. although I, I, I think I'm not a big fan of banks getting all giddy about firing people. But where you guys talk about digital banking a lot, the sheer volume is going to come in. Humans can't handle that. It is. It's a, you're going to need. AI to handle the volume that's going to come in. You, you can hire as many customer service people as you want. So, so is the answer to the question, what are people going to do when AI takes over, is retraining? <laughs> Computer-based <laughs> training specifically. <Yeah. laughs> to control the AI. So do we think, I guess leading on, that RBS apparently are going to cut 880 IT jobs uh, is that in London or is that in the UK? Yeah. And I thought is, they already it, outsourced half of them, didn't they, anyway? No? Well, oh, yeah. that's the question. Who knows about this? This is the other half. Okay. <laughs> so so I, I actually saw this as a, like big TV screens walking through the tube going uh, like up an escalator and saw it. And I was like, I don't know if they were trying to make it out to be a bad thing or a good thing. Like obviously it's a really bad thing for those 880 people. But for me, is this RBS becoming much more efficient about what they're doing? Therefore need... They are becoming a smaller bank. Yeah. You know, so yeah, they, so they need up- 880 less people. So I'm like... Is this like a negative thing or a bad thing? The fact that it's got union at the end of it probably denotes there's like a protest and a bad thing happening. And I obviously I feel bad for the you know eight hundred people who have uh, eight hundred eighty people who have like lost their jobs. But um, yeah, but it's going to be over a period of time. Yeah, up, up to twenty twenty, and it's not clear whether or not this is going to be reorganized or um, kind of uh, some somebody's going to be outsourced and these jobs will be taken by another company. There's just a lot of uh, uncertainty about what this actually means. But it, it says to me that the strategy here is we know we need to reduce costs, so we're going to announce headcount reduction because we don't know what else to do. But there's also an underlying trend going on in IT and banks around it not being a a commodity skill. For, for me, I, I see, you know, we talk to banks quite often about the 10x developer or the guys that you really want to hire, that talent. Yes, we can get 10 people in India for a lot cheaper. And there's been this whole trend of outsourcing and and. Uh, looking for cost efficiencies in running these old systems and outsourcing them. But actually, we're looking at digital now. And actually, you know, it only takes a a small room 
you know, a, a 10, 12 people in order to create some absolutely amazing tech. And that's a very different way of approaching this, I think. So I'm interested in if this 880 is, are we getting rid of, you know, commodity IT because we value talent? I don't think it is. I'm not sure we've seen that that switch yet. Being a massive techie, I'd, uh, and then going back to the Oak North story, I wonder what would happen if uh, they started to push everything onto the cloud, for example. Then you'd be like, well, what, um, what are all your IT people, people going to do? It explode. turns out Amazon already covered that. So, um, but yeah, so I wonder what their strategy will be. It, it, it is an interesting dilemma because actually in the middle of this article, they talk about the news coming just three months since the bank outlined plans to cut hundreds of jobs and offshore them to India. So I guess there's this, like to your point, Jason, there's this weird tension to, hey, like everything needs to be agile but also we're sending all of our devs to india like you know like there's a you know sort of an interesting sort of balancing act it's like they're heading in two directions at once one is charging towards outsource and commoditized and the other one is specialized and smaller groups of, of of really highly talented and and i wonder if these two things compete with each other or is this the argument that that look there's the legacy business legacy technology which serves our existing customers we have to reduce the costs on that but at the same time we have to create small pockets of innovation which most of these organizations do have innovation labs and so on uh, to create the business of the future and, and that's why we see both things happening at once yeah but I, but I think on that though the reducing costs shouldn't be about doing it cheaper it's about doing it better so i think that this is the odd cycle that kind of banks keep getting themselves into is like doing it better is an operational efficiency thing doing it cheaper is just doing the same thing worse uh, and there's also that a problem with that polarization of you know the small team produces that most amazing conference room pilot and works out something crazy and then has to hand it off across the world in order to implement in some way you know that then that they want to change the next week or the next month does that fit into the slas you know how is that uh, scoped are, are there a project manager a relationship manager and three people between you and the dev so how does that all work you know if you're bringing operational IT next to uh, and you say that, that this thing is never finished that we need to keep keep managing it uh, how does that work well I'm just looking at the breakdown of this because one of the things it says is 65% reduction in contractors so it's not just all the permanent all the permanent employees that's two-thirds of the people that well they're not paying into the pension well um, so it's uh, those people would typically be assigned to various sort of little innovation projects so hmm. with that in mind I, I think there is going to be a reduction in, 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 in the innovation teams there as well I think there's a simple rule of thumb. If you've got to take an 18-hour flight to talk to a developer, it's not agile. <laughs> You're talking about your quality point. I don't, unfortunately, quality doesn't feature on the balance sheet. It's just the costs. So they almost don't care when it comes to the finances. But it feels like lazy cost-cutting to me. It, it, it's like, I, this is something I can do to achieve a result now. I know it works. I will get the cost number I want. But I'm, it's short-term gain and long-term pain. And, and it's the kind of thing that the, it is this um, duality that people have where they're, they're trying to do both both inside an organization but it, but is this the this is the misalignment in incentives right so this this is the like this is what all the mis-selling problems that we got into people selling stuff because that was their incentive to sell stuff if actually your procurement department's incentive is to get the cheapest thing that looks like a developer they're going to get the cheapest thing that looks like a developer 
and that you know for me it's it's actually cutting quality rather than cutting cost totally agree it's the it's the obvious choice isn't it you start with a really expensive way to do an operation here then you find a cheaper way to do exactly the same operation so you move it to somewhere where it's cheaper to buy humans to make you do them do stuff and then you say oh actually is there a cheaper way to do that ah, i make i make little computers start to do the same things that the humans did on the old process robotic process automation for example and then eventually at the very end you actually find a better way to do the process that you've been optimizing over the other three stages and we're just not at the end yet i kind of like the idea of short-circuiting to that cloud <laughs> <laughs> so on to the last story and i should thank andrew earl on fintechinsidernews.com for suggesting that uh, that rbs story so last story and this sounds just a little bit odd the core reason why these green coins are being a currency in amsterdam now has someone been smoking something david <laughs> Pretty much, I'll be honest. With you. Like it, it's interesting, given like all of the talk about cryptocurrency and sort of all, all of that uh, good stuff, which we have to probably point out is at an all-time high, Simon. Right? Uh, yeah, no. So briefly today, Bitcoin hit four thousand five hundred dollars, which is its all-time high. Is that wow. your wallet? I see on your screen. No, <laughs> no. telephone number. <laughs> not, not at all. Um, but yeah, the, like this little green plastic token which has www.wastedlab.nl written on it which will be mistaken quite easily given it's based in amsterdam to mean something reasonably different given it is a little green coin it was was quite interesting caught, definitely caught my eye so this is uh, 30 local businesses in Amps- a particular district in amsterdam that have actually signed up to allow people to turn bags of trash into essentially coupons for local shops which i, I think is quite a, an interesting thing i'm not sure if it's one of those ones going back to our point around incentives at the moment uh, a minute ago actually is like the more cardboard i use the more of these tokens i'm gonna get but like the premise here really is like if you move I think to that's a it. i think that's don't you get a token for a bag but doesn't that yeah, sometimes me to use more cardboard yeah. mm. that's the point i guess it's like if i chose to do it naturally and naturally used the amount of cardboard or recycled goods that i that i would do then but then it, it's, it's also keep it's like the brixton pound that came out you know a few years ago the keeping keeping this in the community so Keeping local money local. Keep, yeah, exactly. Um, that was terrible. I was. Uh, <laughs> sounded good in my head, but Dick Van Dyke, you've got uh, probably one fan right there. Um, so, But I, I think this was in sort of almost like reaction to the fact that 5 to 14 million tonnes of plastic is basically being dumped in our oceans every year, which is a terrifying statistic, to be honest with you, and if nothing else, just completely spoiling the the beautiful planet that we actually live on. And you're so right. This idea that I can take these things and use them to support local business, that there are more forms of value than just the national currency, I think is a trend that is macro. Yes, we're seeing it in cryptocurrencies, but we're seeing it elsewhere as well. Renewable energy credits have been around for more than 10 years. This idea that you can make things tradable and there are different points of data that are valuable, but that what's really happening here is pushing them to the consumer. Yes, we've seen it with loyalty points. Yes, we've seen it with other things. But what I really like the idea of is all of these little communities have all of these little ways of managing their money between each other how do they start to exchange those because is the only way to do that to link it back to your national or even your regional currency or is there some way in which if i could buy some of these things on my way to amsterdam would i would i be able to spend my own money and somebody receive these does that have a social benefit can i do social good with the money i happen to be spending anyway you start asking interesting questions once you start thinking See, I don't think that that's great for the consumer. I don't think you want to like fragment your cash across all kinds of different. No, I think I was saying something different because so I've probably explained myself poorly. If that's 
the reaction you've had because what I mean is <laughs> wow, you that, that's it. a really polite diss <laughs> no no it means I've done it badly um, th- so if I see it as euros or pounds but it can be received as something else and it can have another effect that's useful I, so long as I understand it but it's doing something else that's but where did, the, where did the value come from that's the bit that I'm, I'm just slightly struggling with so, this. so in that neighborhood so you get the you know it, it you get a discount on the bars yeah, no, no yeah. I totally get the incentive yeah. Give me cheap beer and I am anyone, so let me tell you. Um, but I don't understand where the value was created. All the fiat currencies in the world, for example, are basically propped up by the economy. Dude, if the economy you know what collapses. Let's do it. All four functions. So, I yeah, love I was going to say, explain to me cryptocurrency then. Like, bit, <laughs> like explain to me Bitcoin. How is yeah. that? So, so Bitcoin is great because it had it had no interest in, in solving the store of value problem. It was only interested of all the four functions of money, just the one, the transfer of value. That's what it solved. And it solved it brilliantly. The yeah. guy was a genius, right? But the concept of actually creating value. Value. Don't get me wrong, I don't believe that economies actually have a value anyway. It's only human life, but whatever. But I don't understand where the value comes from. From You take a load of pot, you take a load of bottles, and then you turn you them into a, a thing. We are in Amsterdam. <laughs> Wait, no, that's after you get the coin, right? I'm assuming they accept it too. Um, but you take a load of bottles, you turn them into coins, and then you exchange them for things that actually took effort and money, etc. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. How, do you, how many plastic green coins equals a coffee? Like and well, I think little, is little, that a sliding scale? Is it like is there of, some sort of exchange? Or? A little bit of a tangent. I don't know how many of you have been to Cybos Swift, and for years they had like a little charity, and they would give you like a little coin to put in the charity box, oh, yeah. and they like ended waitress. up yeah. Well, they ended up they um. The I'm la- not middle class by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I've well, been in once. They've ended up the last show having to give people more coins because they were keeping them. Really? And not putting them in wow. charity. Wow. Like, well, I'm going to save this. This is my yes. pension. Yeah. Well, no, it was like souvenirs. If you're interested <laughs> in tokens and cryptocurrency, you should definitely check out Blockchain Insider. Uh, Simon's little new baby that actually is one of the best podcasts I've, uh, I listen to. That's moment. very kind, Jason. Blockchain Insider, search for it on iTunes or your favourite podcast app, and we cover cryptocurrencies in depth. There's a little moment there between you two. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, you see that? Like, like, that was sweet. Like, it was. It was eye contact and everything. <laughs> I felt like the third wheel, to be honest. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to wrap up another new show. As with every week, we don't have time to cover every news story that's happened in the last week. But don't forget, you can now head to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we've discussed and get involved with the conversation. You can sign up to be a contributor, join the discussion, and yeah, just just be part of the group. So thanks to our guests, uh, Liz, Ali, and Charlie. Yay. Thanks very much. Thank you. Anytime. Where else can listeners find out more about the work you're doing as a as a global fintech <laughs> commentator, Liz? I am. I am fintech girl about town. Uh, right at the moment. Is uh, that dot com? Yeah. Well, right, no, right at the moment, it's uh, girl disruptedcom My personal blog. Uh-huh. Not very fintech associated, but I am starting work this week on a. Uh, I got a green light for it. Start work on a feature length uh, virtual reality film. Oh wow! Wow. Uh, so uh, I'm. Actually, I should have vlogged that for the old thing. But yeah, so I'm. I'm. That, that's. It probably won't be filming for another twelve months. But that's. Uh, that's what's on my agenda this week. But you can find me on Twitter at Ali Patterson, and uh, I work at fintech.finance. Great, Charlie. Uh, I guess it's the Capco website, right? Capco.com. But feel free to find me on LinkedIn and annoy me with any given questions about green money or otherwise. (laughs) If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading them. It's great to hear what you guys think of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye, bye, internet. Bye. (laughs) Can we keep that bit in?